KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about housing, land use, and innovative public policy. Today in the program, we're very lucky to have State Senator Stanley Chang of Hawaii talk about Aloha Homes, a proposal to import what works with Singapore housing to Hawaii. Yes, we'll learn all about this proposal, some of the very interesting and uh, and fraught history of of land use and land trusts in in Hawaii, and uh, much, much more. So let's uh, let's get into it. So thanks uh, so much for being here today, Uh, Senator, and uh, I guess aloha here from uh, California. Uh, It's it's really a pleasure. Aloha, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on from the sunny and beautiful island of Oahu. Yeah, that is the thing about, you know, we're here in California and we're based, I'm, I'm, this show's based out of the Bay Area, the Silicon Valley in particular. Uh, we're in very similar places in a lot of ways. You know, I think you, I, I don't know if this is MSAs, but I believe uh, urban Honolulu is third in the country behind only San Jose and San Francisco. Uh, we are uh, slightly more expensive here in cost of living, uh, but we don't live in, in paradise like you do. So it seems like it's, it's you know, a bit of a, a downside for us. But yet you also, uh, one thing I'm very impressed by is uh, you are, you know, looking to California, but most of all, you're saying California is not the best model. It's actually more of a failure, and you're looking across the world to look at things that actually work. So you may just talk about, you know, where you're standing now as far as housing, and you know, what is your model of kind of learning about what you can do to make housing work better than it is now. So you know, when you're in a state legislature um, and you're trying to address an issue like housing. The first thing you do is you look to our sister states for other states that have successfully addressed the issue. And of course, in Hawaii, we always look to our sister state of California, um, our nearest state. And as you pointed out, California has not solved the affordable housing crisis. There have been a number of proposals. There have there has been vigorous debate, but I think we can all agree that California does not have an abundance of affordable, high quality housing for its residents. And so that inspired me to look farther afield. And so it turns out there are a couple of models um, around the world that do have really abundant, successful, affordable housing for everybody. Um, Two of the very prominent ones are Singapore and Vienna. So I personally visited both Singapore and Vienna and sought to try to understand how it is that they accomplish their mission. And so Singapore was really fascinating. It's an island less than the size, less than half the size of Oahu. Okay. Oahu is about a million people. Singapore has about five and a half million people. And on this island of five and a half million people, they have unlimited housing for every resident who wants it that costs 180,000 US dollars brand new for a three bedroom, two bathroom, 969 square foot condo with a 99 year lease. Okay, so it is like an entitlement there. Everyone gets one, you know, and you might have to wait for it, but there's no question of a shortage. There will never be a shortage. There will always be more. And every person, no matter how rich and poor can buy one. So that was really fascinating to me, and that's where I really got started um, on the the model that we have today. Yeah, it's 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 really inspiring to see places that take it as 
a responsibility to say one of the things a functional government should do is make housing work. In Singapore, they have some of the biggest challenges in the world. It's a tiny, tiny place and a huge population. And I think you see here in California, so many people say, oh, people should just move out to the empty parts of the state. You know, this is a luxury. And this is how most housing works, in, certainly in the United States, just sprawl out until it becomes affordable. Uh, you know, out out there in, in uh, Hawaii, you don't have the same luxury of endless sprawl. You know, you have a very limited space and Singapore is has even more of, of a problem with that. Uh, so it really shows that it really is not, as, as you say, technical issues or physical issues. It's, it's really political issues. I mean, there are many challenges towards adopting this type of a system. I would say on the administrative side, I think the biggest challenge is that this has never been attempted before in the United States. I shouldn't say that. I mean, during the Great Society era, and even before the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the federal government had invested billions in building public housing through uh, you know HUD, and we're all familiar with that program. Yeah, and you know it was it had a lot of successes, but those aren't the that's not what we hear about now. What we hear about now are the failures, the lack of funding for ongoing repairs and maintenance the concentration of poverty, the um, weak political commitment to the success of these um, housing projects. And I think, you know, another symptom that's permeated all of government is, you know, the long list of over budget, um, you know, delayed large infrastructure project projects. I don't know that that necessarily applied to the HUD public housing projects in particular. But um, there's there's a public distrust of large governmental building projects. And I don't think that government is inherently flawed. You know, in Hawaii, we just um, we're currently going through this large sewer maintenance program, a wastewater consent decree that by some measures has been the largest public works project in Hawaii history, even larger than our rail project. And the sewer consent decree, unlike the rail, has been on time and on budget. Mm. So um, in terms of administration, I think the, that our governments in, uh, in America that don't have just the wealth of expertise and planning and development and so on, um, expertise that HDB would have in Singapore. I think in, in in Hawaii, in the U.S., I think that they that these agencies would have to contract out for those services instead of having them in house, which is fine. There's nothing yeah. wrong with that. Um, but I think I, I don't think there's any technical problems. I think it's more just a public distrust of large governmental undertakings. And I think that's yeah, I think that's absolutely extremely smart to say i think if you try to say we will invent everything here you're gonna go through all the same growing pains and you know i mean the fact that we're so far behind in a lot of ways is a challenge but it does mean we can just kind of pick the minds of places that are just who know a lot of good ways to to make this work and you know i i think if you you, you talk about you know the history of public housing in the united states it's been a nasty history of, you know, segregation. Uh, and then later, you know, uh, I think, you know, basically, you know, removing different lower classes in into a very means tested. And, uh, you know, it, it's a program that concentrated poverty, as opposed to Singapore, 80% plus of the population is in these 
public housing units. It is a middle class uh, institution. And that's, you know, very different, but it also means you have a sustainable core. So I, I guess on that topic, uh, you know, Aloha Homes is something which inspired by Singapore HDB. I want you to talk about, you know, Aloha uh, is an acronym. Uh, and I want you to just kind of let, let's talk about, you know, what Aloha Homes is, then we'll kind of break down, you know, the different parts of it. Yeah, so um, you're absolutely right. Aloha Homes is our effort to try to model a program for Hawaii and for the United States based on the Singapore housing model. And it stands for Affordable Locally Owned Homes for All. And um, just to really quickly go through each of those letters, affordable means that these units will cost $300,000 or some low amount um, on, you know, on that scale, on that order of magnitude. Is Locally 300000 Oh, sorry. Is three hundred thousand in in the bill? I thought I saw like it actually is, you know, uh, an actual figure. I'm just kind of curious about. Um, it is in the bill, um, and we. It's not an arbitrary figure. It's based on a figure of three hundred dollars per square foot of hard construction costs that we have in Hawaii. Um, that that's a real number. That's not an estimate. Yeah. And um, if even if you plus 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 all the soft costs. Um, and let's say you have you know five hundred dollars a square foot, including all soft costs. That gets you a six hundred square foot unit for three hundred thousand dollars, which is um, you know not huge, but definitely could do. You know, I used to live in a uh, in in a two bedroom actually that was five hundred fifty square feet. So it you know it wasn't huge, but it's doable. Yeah, and and I guess by the cost of living standards, this would be less than half of the current median cost of a of a condo. Yeah, it's very low. It's very low, um, far below the market price. And that's the main thing, whether it's $300,000, you know, whether some developers are saying that's too low and it has to be up to four hundred or even $500,000, we're still way below the market. Sure. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the affordable end. Uh, yeah. What, what's, uh, what's local? So this is a big one. Um, I've, over the course of the pandemic, I've, read a lot of psychology books and I've come to believe that psychology is the master science. It explains everything because everything of course is dictated by the human brain and um, psychology is the understanding of the human brain. And in Hawaii, we have this island mentality where we love our insiders, but we really have a suspicion of outsiders. The idea that a large influx of folks from California, from overseas would migrate to Hawaii to take advantage of our housing is a real political non-starter in Hawaii. That's extremely controversial. And what I've told people many times in Hawaii is that if Trump came to Hawaii and said, we're going to build our wall here, we're going to keep out all the Californians, all the Airbnbs, all the mainlanders with vacation homes, all the Micronesians, all the homeless people with one-way tickets, um, all the wealthy overseas investors, I think he would have won Hawaii overwhelmingly. Hmm. And so um, what local means is that these units are going to have to be, um, the only people who can occupy these units are Hawaii residents who would be owner occupants and who own no other real property. So these are not wealthy overseas investors. They are Hawaii residents. They are part of our community. And that's augmented by a couple of things. So the bill also includes a preference for those who have been impacted by a project. So for instance, for example, if a project blocks your view or if it increases your traffic, you would have first dibs on these units. So that would make it even more local, right? Because the residents of these units would be actually preferred would be the uh, the residents of the surrounding neighborhoods that would be impacted. 
So, um, and what's more, you know, people in Hawaii are, you know, very aware that Californians and other mainlanders can move to Hawaii tomorrow and become an established Hawaii residency tomorrow. You know, it's it's an instant process. There's no waiting time. It's con- protected by constitution at that. Exactly. Too. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but the reality is, as we all know, the development process is a long and winding road. And even if we were to enact the program tomorrow and to start opening the waiting list tomorrow, it would take years before these units actually, you know, were to open to the first buyers. So that even if we have absolutely no intention of violating the constitution, which I do not, it will take time between becoming a Hawaii resident, adding your name to the wait list and actually, you know, um, receiving one of these units, being able to move into one of these units. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to kind of pick apart, you know, kind of community spirit, localism. And I think it's really unfortunate if it is backwards looking of saying, you know, my family has been back this many generations. We came over in the Mayflower, you know, as opposed to the fact, I think there is obviously something to be said about someone who is transient, certainly who is an absentee owner or investor and someone who really is planting roots and wants to actually become part of a community. Uh, And I think, you know, finding that right kind of like, you know, balancing you are welcome here, but you actually need to, you know, join the community in in, in a in a real way. Uh, to me, that sounds, you know, it really kind of uh, serves a balance between, you know, opposing xenophobic tendencies, but then also saying, you know, it's it is a two way street. You also you know, need to be part of a community to really get the benefits of being part of a community. Yeah, and you know, if you're an owner occupant and you own no other real property, that alone means you are a part of that community. You are not an investor, you know, you don't have any other home, so to speak. Um, And, you know, this is America. We are the, you know, the nation of immigrants. We welcome people from every conceivable background to live here, to contribute to um, our society, our community. That's what makes America great. And um, that's why, uh, you know, as the child of two immigrants, um, one of whom, well, both of whom left China in, um, you know, the middle part of the 20th century to seek better opportunities, to seek education, to escape, you know, the um, oppression that was taking place there. I strongly believe that the American dream has to be available and open to every generation and all future generations as well. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, is, that is the vision of L for local. Let's move on to, to O, ownership. So in Hawaii, um, we have a a lot of leasehold property. And so this is a little bit tricky. So on the mainland, um, there's not that much property that's owned leasehold. Most of the property is owned in fee simple, which means you own it forever. That's what we're all familiar with. Leasehold means that you have um, the exclusive right to the property for a period. And in our case, that period would be 99 years. Okay. So that means after 99 years, you're out. Okay. You get nothing. You walk away with nothing. After 99 years, you get kicked out. But up and from year zero to year 99, you live in that unit. You have exclusive rights to that unit. You can occupy it. You can sell it. You can mortgage it. You can pass it on to your heirs after you've been deceased. And you can do pretty much anything you would do with that unit that you would with a, a unit that's owned in fee simple. And 
um, the reason why 99 years is a magic number, because there's been some you know discussion over what that number should be. The reason why 99 years is a magic number, and it's not just an arbitrary number, is that 99 years will take you to the end of your natural life, every single buyer's natural life. So, you know, if you're in school, if you're in college at Stanford, you graduate, you're able to buy one of these units, your parents help you buy one of these units, you can buy the unit with the assurance that you will never have to move again before you die, which provides the security that I think that true ownership really entails. If it's 55 years, if it's 65 years, that um, the way that other state statutes provide, um, you could very easily outlive a 65-year lease. And then what are we going to do with a, you know, an 86-year-old uh, person um, whose lease has run out? It's just, a, it's, just a, it's just a disaster waiting to happen, which is why 99 years is a good, clear, bright line that sets everyone's expectations appropriately. Yeah, I think it's certainly a... It's certainly, I think, a, a safe line to say, like, yeah, I think I think it is possible to have short-term leases, but it takes a lot of nibbleness and, I think, you know, accountability to make this work. I mean, uh, you know, Singapore has long used 99-year leases. It's very common in all sorts of different arenas. And I think it means, too, you know, this, you know, the, you know, the government in the long term is not forever bequeathing any property. I mean, I, I constantly rue the, the, the fact that in the 19th century people sold off these lands for a pittance to the railroad companies. If it was a 99-year lease, we would have gotten them back by now, and that would have really put us in a better place today. Uh, but actually, uh, so a, a sidebar, I don't know if uh, you know we want to get in the weeds on it, but I was just looking up a little bit of you know Hawaii's history of like the Land Reform Act in 1967 and its previous uh, you know lack of fee simple entirely. Is that is that something that uh, I guess is worth getting into at all? Because I find it just kind of interesting what led to, I guess, kind of a decrease in, you know, leasehold property in Hawaii in the first place? Yeah, well, this is um, a very tangled uh, web, a very yeah. deep rabbit hole. And it starts with the Kingdom of Hawaii, which was the um, existed for most of the 19th century, founded by King Kamehameha. Um, and I guess you could say that in ancient times, you know, if we were describing it in Western legal terms, you know, um, the king owned all the land in fee simple. And there were people who lived on the land and who worked the land, um, but they did not own, it was more of a communal model that, um, that uh, was in place. Uh, I think it was King Kamehameha II or third who instituted something called the Great Mahale, hmm. in which uh, that was the first round of land reform in Hawaii. And he basically divided the land into three parts, one part for the commoners, one part for the nobility and one part for himself. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, and, and the one part for himself didn't mean that he what, you know, he enjoyed all the you know, revenue from that land in, owner, in ownership. It was more a model that in which the king held the land in trust for the people of Hawaii. That's sure. how we might say it in Western terms. And over the years, much of that land has actually passed intact from the kingdom to the Republic of Hawaii, to the territory of Hawaii, to the state of Hawaii, where it now is. And it's known as the Crown Lands. Sure. And um, the alienation of those lands, the sale of the fee interest in those lands would be extremely controversial in the native Hawaiian community who really see it as the land bank, the land corpus that will provide the kernel for a future native Hawaiian self-governing entity. 
Yeah. And so, um, and, and in addition to those crown lands, there are many other lands that the state of Hawaii owns that are not technically crown lands, but in, in this, almost to the same degree, I, I don't know that the distinction is, is, is so strong. Um, the bottom line is any state owned lands, the alienation of any state owned lands would be very, very controversial because it, um, it would, it would be part of the undoing process of, um, of, you know, of the, what the kingdom established. And in particular, um, since you mentioned the land reform act of the 1960s, that was kind of the second large wave of land reform. What happened was there were large private native Hawaiian controlled landowners. So again, you know, the king has split the land into three parts. Um, a lot of the land that went to the nobility became concentrated um, in the hands of the bishop estate, which was the estate of one of the last um, Kamehameha princesses, a, a woman named Bernice Pauahi Bishop. Hmm. And when she passed away, she left her estate in trust to support the establishment of what is now Kamehameha School. And these lands are, to, are you know, I think we're about in the 15% of all the Hawaiian islands. Um, and they, in the 1950s and 60s during the building boom, Bishop Estate built a ton of leasehold homes for 55-year leases um, on their lands that they sold to the local population. And those leases had ex escalation clauses in which the lease rents, which were very low, would go up to market prices every 10 years. And the homeowners resisted this, even though they knew what they were getting themselves into. So it was sort of like, you know, it was, it was you know, like a typical you know, development you'd see, but it'll be more like a mobile home as far as, I guess, leasehold property and, and the way that the, the, the leasehold rents would, would increase. Yeah, they weren't mobile homes. They were... Well, I, I Exactly, I understand, but the same kind of ownership structure, even though these were actually re just buildings that, you know, you, you would normally, you never see the leasehold structure in kind of a common, you know, development in, in the mainland. Right. Um, because the because the bishop estate was very conscious of the, you know, disposal of many native Hawaiian land assets over the years and did not want to fall into that same trap. And I don't sure. think they had ever had the intention of evicting people at, at the end of the lease terms. Yeah. Um, and certainly they didn't even get close to the end of the lease terms because um, the homeowners got the state legislature to use the power of eminent domain to acquire those lands and then to resell them to the individual homeowners. In a lot of ways, it's, it's it sounds like a tax revolt, almost like California's Prop 13, of they didn't want to pay what was kind of their share to the, I guess, the, the state commonwealth, you know, the, this, this, this land held in, in common. So instead, they tried to make sure they didn't, didn't have to pay that much and, and, and I guess, reduce their own, their own uh, obligation. Right. Yeah, you could you could put it that way. And they wanted they wanted the benefits of ownership and fee, which which is fine, but which, you know, wasn't what they had signed up for. Sure. Well, I guess on this program, the Henry George program, I, we're, I guess we're, we usually don't say it's it's fine to have ownership and fee, but, you know, I, I suppose it, it matters what your perspective is. Uh, but yeah, I think this is interesting when you talk about, you know, these are like Singapore homes. These are owned. They have 90% home ownership. But I would say in a lot of ways, this is not the same sort of home ownership we normally see as an investment. And, and especially in Zaloha Homes model, you aren't really expected to see your home value accrue without limit. 
uh, and you know it's just a, a savvy way to park money and see it grow. It is ownership, but more, I think the main benefits are about giving autonomy and control over your living space more than saying this is, you know, this is mostly an investment vehicle. That's right. And the reason why it's not an investment vehicle is because of the home ownership occupancy requirement, as well as the requirement that you own no other real property. Now, in Singapore, they've actually over the decades loosened their restrictions a little bit. Um, and they are expected to increase in value in the secondary market in Singapore. In fact, yeah. if the HDB units started to decline in value, the government, I think, would see that as a really big crisis. Sure. Um, but they do increase in value and they they can and are sold into the secondary market for a profit. And in fact, the record setting HDB units in Singapore have sold for close to a million US dollars in the secondary market. Yeah, I would say one big difference it's worth remembering is, you know, if this was, you know, kind of a, a small holding by, you know, uh, by the state government, the city government or whatever, and it passes in the private market, th that kind of you are more of a price, you know, you know, taker, you don't really set the price. Singapore HDB, they do kind of really impressive things about maintaining prices by at once, they are almost monopolist. I mean, it's they have a huge share of the land and all housing stock. So if they say over time it will accrue, they can almost design what the, you know, the rate should be because it is almost like you know they're they're like Walt Disney. They got their own. You know, you know it's like they they can just make anything happen to to their dreams. So it's uh, I I think it's something that I think a smaller, uh, you know, social housing authority would not have the luxury of doing is being able to I I think control that secondary market the same degree Singapore does. Would that be right to say? I think so. Um, but I think many American governments, states, and municipalities, and so on do have enough land. Um, so in Hawaii, the state of Hawaii is the largest landowner along the rail line in Honolulu that's currently being built. We don't need to own 90% of the land the way that Singapore's government does. Um, but I do think that HDB as the market maker, I think that that is an important role that can be played by the state of Hawaii. Um, we own enough land that we can, you know, quadruple, quintuple the amount of residential housing construction and therefore become the market maker and um, you know produce enough housing to meet demand you just need density that's all yeah and I think you make a you know when you're talking about the rail development this has always historically been a big thing when you couple development along a rail line a lot of extremely exciting value capture schemes are opened up to you so actually just just a bit of a sideline uh, can you tell us more about the uh, I guess the uh, the rail line expansion uh, that's going on in in Honolulu. Yeah, so Hawaii is we're currently building our first um, mass transit line. It is going from east couple from east to west basically, which is good because Honolulu, bounded by the sea to the south and the mountains to the north, is basically a linear city from east to west. It's a corridor. Yeah, and it's um, twenty miles, twenty one stations. And it's currently under construction. The you know there have been a number of delays and cost overruns, as is probably typical for these types of projects. Um, but you know the if you if you fly into Hawaii today, into Honolulu today, you can see the line is there. It is it is um, 
I'd say I think over half the length is now completed. Um, it is an over entirely overhead line, so it never has to mess with traffic. And um, you know, at the airport, though that section already is there, so um, it's coming. And you know, there are various dates that have you know been getting pushed back for its completion. But the bottom line is, when it is completed, it will offer a viable alternative to private transportation for everyone commuting to work. So in our vision, we would have um, the rail transit line for people who need to get to work or to school, but every other service that you would need would be within a short five to 15 minute walk of your housing unit in a high density forest of towers, basically like a Singapore or like a Hong Kong. And um, that, you know, would make it possible. In fact, it would make it desirable to never own a car. Yeah. And it's very difficult for those of us in Hawaii or California to kind of wrap our minds around that. Oh, the but, jealousy you know, is intense right now <laughs> hearing about, you know, how, how this is moving along. You know, we move slow over here in, in California. That's that's the way things things happen. But uh, and, and you say this is built with, you know, this uh, the you know, the state. Uh, controls the land around the rail development. Was this? Did they already hold it before this was planned and, and put into effect, or did they have to acquire the land as part of this? They already owned almost all of it. That's nice. That's a nice, nice luxury uh, again. And as, as you're saying, to make this, uh, you know, scale at the cost of of being sold at cost of you know three hundred thousand, uh, the secret sauce is high density. You know, high density on state-owned lands near rail. So yeah, well, talk a little bit more about the the level of density you're talking about here. Yeah, so I currently live in a suburb, uh, probably a fairly typical suburb, um, on a quarter acre lot with a single family home on it, which means that the housing density is probably three units per acre, three to four units per acre, maybe less because you you know you have parks and so on. Um, so that's probably typical for an American suburb, probably in California as well. Um, we have other areas of Honolulu that are high density towers, um, China, Chinatown Mauka, um, the area around the Don Quixote, um, Ala Moana area, the 801 South Street development that are on a scale of approximately 250 units per acre. Mm, yeah. And that, those are, you know, towers. Those are high density towers. Um, in Hong Kong, we took a delegation last year and we visited one of their newer public housing developments, the Ontat housing estate, which had a de level of density of about 585 units per acre. Nice. So I think that was about 14 towers on about 16 acres. And these towers are, you know, very, t they're tall towers, but walking around those towers, it, you know, it did not, there, there was a lot of open space. Um, it did not feel extremely, you know, overpowering, at least for those of us on the delegation, there was open space, there was green space and so on. Um, and if you apply that level of housing density, um, just to use one example of a parcel that the state owns that already, you know, that there's a rail station going to be there, the Aloha Stadium parcel slated for redevelopment, it's 98 acres. At that level of housing density, if you develop that 585 units per acre, you could get you could wipe out close to 10 years worth of the state's entire housing demand on just one parcel yeah and in this, this 10 years is like 60,000 you're, you're looking at is what hawaii says it needs to catch up with 
right? There was a study that said that between 2015 and 2025, uh, we would need 65,000 housing units. Yeah. It's interesting here because I guess to you know, relate it to it's it's, you know, how do you fulfill needs? You know, here in California, it's it's it, it, it we're slowly making strides to kind of impose from above. You know, we have like a regional housing needs allocation. Like Palo Alto, who has been a bad actor, is finally needed to catch up with 10,000 units. And that's a big question. Do you kind of slowly densify your single family areas, which are going to have a lot of political backlash? Or do you build a few dense towers near transit and maybe wipe out your entire thing in a way that maybe more people would consider painless? It's it's an interesting kind of political trade-off. Yeah. And I actually, I, I know that most of the efforts on the mainland, including in California, have been to densify single family neighborhoods around transit stations, around job centers, or in Oregon and Minneapolis, just all single family neighborhoods. Um, I don't, you know, with all due respect, I, I, I look forward to the results of these experiments because I think it is too early to tell whether they've been successful or not, these you know, upzoning bills, basically. I personally am not convinced that they will be successful. To transform neighborhoods at that, at that level um, would require the redevelopment of enormous amounts of how. I mean, it would utterly change the face of our communities. And, and and the thing I wonder too is, you know, when you build near rail, you have the solution to transit right there, as opposed to it's a it's an open question. When you turn, you know, a street which is full of single family homes and probably a lot of street parking, it's full, and then you add more, sometimes with like no parking allocated, are we going to organically start building more transit lines to serve it? I'd love to see that happen, but it's a challenge. And I would say certainly when you build near rail, the challenge is already figured out for you up front. You know, you take the rail line. Yeah, you're right. And um, obviously there are rail lines that are built through existing communities like, you know, like BART, like DC, you know, like uh, the ones that we're all familiar with. In sure. Hong Kong and Singapore, they take it up a level by really planning really incredible development TOD around the stations. Sure. Um, and they do the value capture thing that you're talking about just to a degree that in America would be, you know, just amazing and inconceivable. Um, but I, I don't think that, I don't think that cars are the answer. And, you know, um, everything that we can possibly do to get rid of cars, I think we need to do. Um, I'm fine with letting cars exist in their current neighborhoods. But, you know, for the new neighborhoods that we're building, like Aloha Stadium, again, we would not be displacing a single home. There are zero housing units at Aloha Stadium today. You know, displacement is very controversial. And I, and I understand why. It, it's not yeah. something that we should undertake like, lightly, but that's what single family densification involves. It involves displacement of, of thousands of communities and, and homeowners. And I, that's why I just, I'm not that optimistic about it. I mean, it has happened in world history before. Um, I'm thinking about Japan when the U.S. leveled every city and then they were rebuilt. It, it, you know, single family homes were redeveloped. Um, you know, once like Tokyo was wiped out, then they rebuilt multifamily or like the communist bloc during the Cold War, the Khrushchevka, you know, Nikita Khrushchev before he became Soviet leader was famous for building these multifamily housing blocks that mm. spread across the Soviet bloc. But I mean, you know, growing up, my my mother in china you know my my you know china europe 
all of these places were transformed by these Khrushchevka. So it can happen, but I, I just, uh, unless you have extremely centralized control or unless you have a city that's just leveled to the ground by firebombing, yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't know how that it's, it would be unprecedented. Sir, yeah, I mean, when Singapore was was densifying and buying up the land, they had to shift people around. It's a major undertaking. I guess California, trying to avoid displacement, they are trying to put all the weight on owner-occupiers because, you know, you're not being displaced if you are, in fact, the owner, if it's your own choice. But then you're kind of limiting your potential. You're kind of saying, let's entice you, let's incent you, instead of saying, no, let's transform it. And, you know, if, you know, if, if instead you're building the stuff yourself, you don't have to kind of offer the carrot you can just, you know, take advantage and, and make it happen. Uh, one question for you is, as far as the kind of uh, rail lines, is there any zoning restrictions as far as this goes? Or is this pretty easy to put 50-story towers there? Um, there are restrictions, and they're being loosened because the city understands that rail is coming and density is needed. But I think we need to, re- you know, loosen them even further to permit densities at 500 or even 1,000 units per acre. Nice, um, nice. That's very difficult to do, you know, in the U.S. under any zoning regime. And and I guess not. I mean, I just I'm just so curious about this too because I know it's a bit different. But you were previously on the Honolulu City Council, uh, correct? And uh, I guess what what is the role of zoning and city councils opposed to state interventions in Hawaii? Because I, I believe it's one of the more unique paradigms. Is that right to say? Yeah. So in Hawaii, we have the nation's most heavily regulated land use. Um, we have zoning at the city level, but we also have a state land use commission with classifications of urban and rural and conservation and agricultural and so on. So there are actually two levels. So even at the state, there's a state process by which you need to reclassify land if you want to you know, build towers or whatever in a rural district, for instance. Um, and at the county level slash city level, um, there are processes for rezoning land. They tend to be limited in scope, and um, they tend to be extremely controversial, even when they're con- you know even when they're done on a very very you know low level basis. And um, I think that's the reason why rezoning um, on an individual basis has become you know viewed as a barrier to densification and to creating new housing supply. So that's why I'm also not that interested in zoning in rezoning unless we get a ton of bang for our buck you know and by a ton of bang for our buck i mean like a thousand units per acre yeah pick your battles make them big that's i think that's that's exactly. probably a pretty wise philosophy yeah so so in other words there is in fact local controls the municipal level which is not preempted by the state in hawaii they are Correct. both just they just you know overlap on each other that's interesting but the fragmentation like uh honolulu covers the entire island of uh, there's no other municipalities in Oahu is that right correct okay so that that at least makes it the fragmentation in some parts of the US mainland is you know can be something pretty awful uh so yeah that's that's been a, a long diversion into o for ownership let's let's talk more about uh about homes h yeah so these are not tiny homes okay they're not shoe boxes in the sky i mean they're not going to be huge but they will have every amenity that you would possibly need schools you know you'd be within walking distance to schools grocery stores, restaurants, post office, dry cleaners, you know, pharmacies and transit. That's actually really the Hong Kong MTR model. They've really done a good job of articulating this well. They say that 
you should be within a five minute walk of everything. You know, 15 minutes is kind of the hot topic right now based on the Paris, you know, arrondissement model. Yeah. But in Hong Kong, they do it five minute walk to everything. So, you know, people are like, you know, so nobody, nobody drives in Hong Kong. Nobody drives in Hong Kong. I was with, during our delegation last year, I was with a friend on one of the streets of the most urban crowded part of Kowloon during rush hour. It was like 5 p.m. at the peak of rush hour. And on our side street that we were walking, um, there were some cars parked along it, but there were no cars driving on it. Yeah, um, yeah. And there is gridlock in some parts of Hong Kong, but n- most I, I, the number, the percentage of people who commute by private vehicle in Hong Kong is tiny. It is less than 10%, probably less than 3%. And one of my favorite um, pieces of infrastructure, they have kind of a second superstructure of the city, you know, like pedestrian walkways. So you, like, it is, it is so seamless. I mean, I've not been around a whole lot in the world, but I have been to Hong Kong once. And just, you want to get anywhere, you want to the subway, there is nothing stopping you from getting there quick and it's it's just such a fluid functional place to just move around for dirt cheap and it's yeah it's it's really just a it's a it's 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 awe-inspiring the way it's put together absolutely it's it's amazing um and that's what we're that's what we're hoping to replicate um is is car ownership uh like levels like how high is that currently in honolulu it's very high it's like comparable to california i'm sure yikes (laughs) <laughs> which is like it's yeah, so you need to imagine all those cars being shipped out there it's, it's yeah you'd hope the friction would make it less but that's that's really unfortunate right and it's our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions and cars are you know um very i mean they're not I, it's not clear to me that they're good in principle i mean they're they're one of the leading causes of death in the United States. They're wildly expensive to buy, finance, maintain, insure, repair, refuel, park at home, park at work. They're a terrible investment because they lose value the moment you drive them off the lot and they don't stop until they get to zero and they actually go down below zero as well. Um, so it's it's not a good option. Um, private and cars I, and are I think not a good also- option. Yeah, politically, I think cars were an awful option because it kind of gives you the easy out of saying, instead of making our housing work, let's actually make functional housing infrastructure transit for all the people. It's usually, oh, if you can't afford to be right here, just get a car and drive from way out there, you know, and it's just, I, I just think it's, it really, I think, excuses the responsibilities of just making a functional city when you can say, oh, you know, sprawl is the answer. And I think it's a very bad answer. Right. Right. Exactly. And that's why, you know, the alternative to driving in your car to Costco to make your, you know, weekly, you might buy, you know, the family pack of croissants for your family for breakfast at Costco. In France, the bakeries make croissants twice a day, once in the morning for the breakfast crowd, but once in the afternoon for the school kids walking home from their schools in order to have an afternoon snack. Because in France, apparently serving an eight hour old croissant to your child is like <laughs> child abuse. That's fine. Right? And, and and here we are munching our eight day old, you know, croissants. Um, it's a better way to live. That's a better way to live. Um, and in Singapore, you know, in Hong Kong, they, they've really achieved that. So, uh, yeah, so, so, so tell us more about the homes and kind of, you know, what you think are the, yeah, I guess, challenges and how, you know, to make homes, I think, are, you know, beloved by the people who live in them. Right. So the first is you have to start with 
the size. So these are not tiny homes, okay? And in, in fact, in Singapore, they don't even sell studios. Their smallest unit is a one bedroom, but most of their units are three bedrooms because they expect you to have a family and to have kids and need the space. Um, and 969 square feet is not that small of a condo. I understand it's not that big, but it's not that small um, of, a, of a unit, even in Hawaii, even in modern high rises that are going up now in Hawaii. That's that's pretty big. That's a multi, that's a million dollar condo in Hawaii today. It's palatial compared to uh, some places I've lived recently. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but then the second part is, again, this seamless integration, is, which is what MTR in Hong Kong calls it, that within a five minute walk, so instead of, you know, say, think about your, you know, empty nesters, right? Typical empty nesters, they have to jump in the car in their suburb to go buy groceries, pharmacy, post office, bank, you name it, right? But in a place like a Hong Kong or a Singapore, you don't have to take a car to all those services. You actually can just take an elevator. Yeah. Um, because your all of those essential services are within a very short walk in Hong Kong, a five minute walk. And, you know, it's so close. Everything is so close and so walkable that, you know, people think, oh, well, they must have a lot of biking because they don't do cars. Actually, no one bikes in Hong Kong because a bike would actually slow you down. Yeah, I mean, parking is hard for a car. It, I mean, it's still hard for a bike, you know? I mean, right. if, you, if you can walk, you know, walking's, walking is king. Exactly. And in addition to all the other benefits that we mentioned, like greenhouse and so on, um, Hong Kong has recently surpassed, you know, Hong Kong we think of as a just a, dystopian blade runnish urban jungle which i okay fine you know you may have that opinion and we may agree to disagree but the fact is that dystopian you know urban you know totally urban no green space no parks that environment today has the world's highest life expectancy because and, it turns out that yeah. high density is very good as a habitat for human uh for human life and I think really when you talk about people say, oh, high density means no, you know, green space preservation. In fact, you know, Hong Kong has, it is enormously green. And I think the same kind of things you see in, in you know, Hawaii of just the amount of wilderness, it, you know, it is, it shows there are more ways than sprawl to, to, to make a city happen. That's right. People are shocked to learn that Hong Kong is 75% green space, which is a similar percentage to the island of Oahu, to the idyllic tropical paradise of Oahu. Yeah. And you talk about so the collinear trail, like, you know, it's, it's, it's almost like a flipped version of, of Hong Kong Island. Exactly. And so yeah. that's why um, Oahu is really an ideal candidate for this type of development. Nice. So anything more on homes or should we move on to A for all? Sure. Yeah, let's move on. And this is maybe the single hardest to wrap our minds around. And we touched on it earlier. Um, in America, when we say public housing, we think of two things. We think of a low subsidized price and we think of a low income resident and those things always go together okay and so for all and i think to this day every single hud unit ever developed has had an income restriction on it even though we are all aware of the problems of concentrating poverty i don't think anyone in the us has seriously championed the idea of abolishing income restrictions on it housing yeah, I mean, means testing is a way of life in so many of our of our you know welfare programs and our housing programs, and I think it's worth mentioning uh, a lot of places that make it work they don't do means testing, and in fact they do the exact opposite. They you know don't have restrictions. Correct. Um, I just read a biography of Frances Perkins, Franklin Roosevelt's labor secretary, um, the first female cabinet member, um, and. You know, one of the lines in that book is a program for the poor is a poor program. 
Sure. And, you know, that's why all, you know, not just, not just housing, but the successful sectors of American government today are all universal. Okay. So the largest pieces of our federal budget are Medicare, Social Security, and Defense. These three programs have in common that they are not means tested. They are for everybody. Even Donald Trump gets Medicare and Social Security. And of course, defense protects him like every American, no matter how rich or poor. And that is why even Donald Trump pledged never to cut Social Security, Medicare, or defense. Yeah. Public schools, public libraries. Yeah, it's 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 yeah, he runs against socialism, but then he goes, you know, it's like it is these programs, they aren't socialism. They just they just benefit everyone loves them. You know, it's it's they're they they uh, they are elevated above ideology in that sense. You know, they're just beloved programs that work for people. And that's that's what people care about more than ideology is. Does this work for me? Yeah, socialism is a loaded political term. I think it became more loaded because, you know, there was the Cold War against a Soviet a socialist bloc. Sure. But, you know, you can call it whatever you want. You can call it socialist. You can call it public goods. You can call it universal, like universal basic income. The bottom line is um, the successful programs of American government, public education, public parks, public roads are all open to the public. They're all for the public. And in fact, I ask people, how would you feel if Hawaii's wealthiest individual, Pierre Omidyar, founder of eBay, took his kids out of private school and sent them to public school, then to community college, and then to the University of Hawaii after that? And people say, that would be amazing. That'd be great. I'd, you know, we'd be proud. And I would say, but that means that he is forcing you, the taxpayer, to pay for 100% of his kids' education when clearly he's capable of paying for his own kids' private educations. And people are okay with that. And I, I respond, yes, the, people are okay with that because this is America. We are all equal. Okay, If the public school is good enough for the homeless kid, it's good enough for the billionaire's kid. And I and think that sort of accountability is fantastic. You know, When you have fussy rich people using the same public goods, it makes sure that you're going to have fussy rich people make sure that they can speak to the manager and make sure stuff works. And I think that's good for everybody. And they're going to support it. And, you know, another way to explain it is the difference between abundant abundance mentality and scarcity mentality, you know? So the deal back to our friends, the public schools, which are not means tested, which are available to the billionaires. Um, I ask people, how would you feel if in this era of unprecedented budget shortfalls, you took your kid to the local public school and the DOE told you, I'm sorry, due to the unprecedented budget situation we are in, we are unable to offer your child a free taxpayer funded education. People would flip out. They might even sue. Yeah. Okay? And when their lawyers sue, they would discover that in the Hawaii state constitution, the Hawaii revised statutes and the Hawaii administrative rules, nowhere is the state obligated to provide a free taxpayer funded education to your child, to every child. Okay. Some states do have that. Hawaii is not one of them. But over time, over decades of, and there was a time when Hawaii did not have universal free public education. There was a time when none of the United States had universal free public education. Okay. But over decades of practice in all 50 states, we have come to expect that a free education is offered to all those who are eligible, who are under a certain age. Right. And that expectation um, is abundance mentality. Okay, if the school is overcrowded, we'll just build another one, right? And that, that abundance mentality is really powerful. 
Housing, on the other hand, we have scarcity mentality, which means that it's a scarce resource, it's a limited resource, it can only go, th go to those who need it the most, i.e. poor people, right? That's why you throw in all these AMI limitations, income caps, and so on. And that's why the program just, the programs just don't work. You know, a program for the poor is a poor program. If I were to, with Aloha Homes, insert income restrictions and first-time homebuyer restrictions, I represent an affluent district, I would, I would cut out every single voter in my district. Why would I do that? If I yeah. want my voters to support a program, why would I cut them out? Smart right? politics is smart. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning. I think there's two, two things to look at. One is, is it universal? And the second thing is, is it sustainable? And I think like the New Deal... New Deal, Social Security was a universal and sustainable program. People can say it's a pyramid scheme, but we make it continue to work. It's going to continue to work. We just need to continue funding it. But compared to like FHA, you know, uh, you know, homes, they, I think, supported a fee simple model of, you know, kind of, you know, normal real estate backed by, you know, government loans, which in the end, I think has proved to be unsustainable in a lot of ways, you know, because at a certain level, you run out of space if you're just going to sprawl out and not kind of consider how do you make housing work uh, at the level of, of, of cities. And I think, you know, I think we need different approaches. What is a universal and sustainable model for housing? And I, I think Aloha Homes is, you know, I think copies HDB in a lot of ways, which is a universal and sustainable model. Right. And in HDB, you know, the president of Singapore lived in HDB before she became president. So, you know, I, I think we would celebrate, we should celebrate as a nation, this nation founded on equality, that, you know, politicians and CEOs and billionaires live side by side with ho formerly homeless families and bus drivers and bartenders and, you know, um, you know, all, all facets of society. But I, I will say that even though we have all these great ideals, and even though you and I, Mark, agree on it, I think this is maybe the single most controversial element of Aloha Homes. The idea that people who don't need it will get access to it is highly controversial, even in the left in this country. Oh, I, 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 I am. I, it's, it's, it's in the air here. We've had some kind of uh, development of public lands and cross subsidization in that sense, which is you let in mixed income. And then you, you know, it makes you, it gives you the capacity to have more housing, more people at all income levels are helped. But some people say, no, we should, you know, 100% of resources should go towards the absolute neediest. This sounds like the most loving and, you know, kind of thoughtful thing, but really it's not like it just, it means you need a funding source. It, it just, it, it sounds good, but it just really doesn't scale or work if you're going to do only heavily subsidized housing on scarce public resources. Uh, and I, I think it's like, I, I'm actually like uh, looking at, you know, a little bit of kind of the people pushing back on the idea of like, you know, a public land trust needs to serve the public good. And the, like some people are saying it should only be means tested because that means it's only helping the neediest as opposed to, I think to me is serving all people through a sustainable leasehold model is that serving the public good in my mind i absolutely believe it is you know in my mind it's serving the public good to almost the ideal degree it's it's a really i i think nifty model of sharing the land in a sustainable uh ecological and i think humane way and i i i think it's unfortunate when you see people push back that way 
Oh, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And over the decades, you know, in Singapore, there is now the expectation, just like we have in the United States, the expectation of a universal free public education. Now in Singapore, they have the expectation of homes for everybody, no matter how rich or poor. It's part of the it's part of the abundance mentality. And the 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 belief that public resources can only go to the poorest, that comes only out of scarcity mentality. Right. You don't see prost protesters saying that about our public parks or about our public schools. They don't. Nobody says public schools should only be restricted to the poorest. In fact, yeah. the, people would people would have the op, people, the same people who say that housing should only be restricted to the poorest, those the neediest. If you told them, all right, well, why don't we also restrict public education to the poorest and neediest? I think that they would flip out and strongly oppose that. Because it would create, you know, a bifurcated society. It would it would create what Republicans call class warfare. Sure, you know? um, and I agree with that. So a question for you is, I, I guess, in, when these when some of these critiques are coming from, I think very, I think heartfelt places. You know, for example, like the indigenous groups of Hawaii, I see are some of the people who've, who've offered some objections uh, that things must be means tested. What do you think is the best way to kind of, I guess, come to be like to see eye to eye? on you know to say that no universal programs can serve the public good that's that's a very hard question a very very hard question on the mainland um especially in the year 2020 there's been a very strong focus and interest in racial equity and justice um the african-american community in hawaii is small um the native hawaiian community in many ways has gotten the short end of the stick in in, 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 and there are many parallels to the African-American community on the mainland, but I can, I can honestly say that in Hawaii, we have not had that conversation of equity for the native Hawaiian community and the conversation about racism, about implicit bias, about subconscious bias, about institutionalized racism has simply not happened in Hawaii. I am, I am, you know, I think I'll, I, I'm going to be one of the few politicians in Hawaii who would say that with respect to the native Hawaiian community, there is a very, very deep problem of both structural racism, implicit subconscious bias. I don't know that anyone in Hawaii has ever said that um, publicly in, in terms of elected officials. Um, the police chief of Honolulu doesn't admit that we have a problem, what mm. we, you know, explicitly says that we do not have a problem with subconscious bias, with implicit bias, but I'm gonna say it. I, I believe because it's true, you know, when you expropriate the land, when you when you expropriate the land holdings of a trust for native Hawaiian children and you put them into the hands of people who are disproportionately not native Hawaiian, it is a racial issue. It, it just is. Yeah. You know, um, if you know, and I, I don't I, I could rattle off a number of projects that have come to a head recently where it was the native Hawaiian community on one side and other communities on other sides. But I, I can tell you, Mark, it is extremely taboo, extremely taboo in Hawaii today to suggest that there is an oppressor class um, of people in our community today to identify them by name and to identify their group, you know, as it is. And to say that that class um, is... Uh, has produced a lot of inequitable results for the native Hawaiian community. There is no, um, there's almost no willingness in Hawaii to acknowledge that any disparities, any inequities are um, the products of these structural issues and not the products 
of the individual responsibility of Native Hawaiian communities themselves. Yikes. And um, I, I don't know how to, I, I, this is obviously a conversation, you know, that we could go on for much longer. And I, and I, as a non-Native Hawaiian myself, I'm committed to being a part of this and, you know, being an ally and being a supporter. Um, that's why I believe that our Aloha Homes program should become the largest houser of Native Hawaiian families, just as the Hawaii Department of Education, a non-Hawaiian focused uh, organization is the largest educator of Native Hawaiian children. And just as the University of Hawaii, a non-Hawaiian focused institution is the largest higher educator of Hawaiian um, students. I think that this can be as well. Um, but, you know, we're talking about, you know, shifting from a scarcity mentality to an abundance mentality. And that's just not easy to do when these inequities have persisted for such a long time and are just so taboo even today to discuss in the public sphere. Yeah, you know, how do you undo the inequities of the past when you know you have you know resources shared in the community are expropriated? It's very hard. You know, I, I think it's it's there's really no simple solution on on the on the face of it. Certainly not on the political sphere. But I think even if you talk about you know reparations and other things are, I think you know correct but very difficult to make happen. Universal programs in a lot of ways can slowly rebalance this and i think you know i i think it certainly isn't an argument it's universalism to say that we also need to undo the inequities i think we need to be doing both and universalism i think makes it easier that's, that's at least my take on it you're right yeah and the you know the 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 answer is more universalism not less you know you sure. already talked about fha which was a you know race blind program a need blind program right? FHA, FHA mortgages. But what they did do was they engaged in redlining, which sure. had the effect, a disproportionate impact on African-American and minority communities. So even though FHA was very popular, it is still very popular. Um, even though programs like the, you know, mortgage interest deduction are, you know, again, non-need blind and very popular, they do have disproportionate impacts on the community. And so what we need is actually greater universalism to resolve some of those disproportionate impacts and to bring minority communities into this um, system that everyone has. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll just, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, say, I think, you know, housing is tricky. And I think, you know, looking at traditional models of fee simple home ownership as an investment, you're never going to cover everyone this way, you know? And I think you talk about home ownership in the States, you know, I think Hawaii is one of the uh, smallest, it's inching close to 50%. You know, that's, you know, almost half the population is landless. They're not seeing an investment in, in, the, in the land uh, as opposed to, uh, you know, it's like, you know, HDB, 90% of, I guess, you know, Singapore citizens are our homeowners because they made a model that scales and i think you say oh we need to extend more credit to homeowners to invest i think that's a proven model that just does not scale and i think we need to be we, we need to think beyond this right so there is a program in hawaii today for 50 percent or native hawaiians with 50 percent or more blood quantum um, it's called the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. It was founded in 1920 um, by Prince Kuhio, who was then Hawaii's de uh, non-voting delegate to the United States Congress, the territory of Hawaii's delegate. And, you know, you have to be 50% or more Native Hawaiian. You get a 99-year lease. Um, and I think today, if someone were to propose a program 
that were restricted only to 50% or more native Hawaiians that would concentrate them, which a disproportionately poor group that would concentrate them in areas with cyclical poverty. Um, and I, I think that that would be a very controversial program. I don't think people would support that program. I think mm -hmm. it came out of scarcity mentality. And I think what we really need is abundance mentality. And I think Singapore does that well, because in Singapore, if you're too poor to make a mortgage payment on an HDB home, they, the government will subsidize you. So you still live side by side with your peers who make more money than you. You're not concentrated into an island of poverty. Sure. Um, and I think that's, that's the answer. And I think it's worth mentioning, too, there are pitfalls in the Singapore model that I think we can move beyond. You mentioned before, I think certainly in the context we have, having an unregulated secondary market, I think, is unfeasible in the same way that you know Singapore does. And instead, having a limited equity model in which resale is you know, not done. Uh, you know, just kind of willy nilly, there would actually be it could would either integrate with the existing queues, or there would be some sort of, you know, regulation on resale. I think that's very pragmatic. Uh, I think another thing is Singapore, I think, in my mind has incredibly gross social control aspects, insofar as they're trying to push marriage earlier. So married people uh, will get dibs on HDB earlier, unmarried people have to wait till they're 35. And this also means uh, gay people, uh, you know, they don't get the same benefits. There's a lot of, and let's not even mention the fact that, you know, non-citizens uh, have an incredibly ugly time and, you know, a lot of ways are kind of uh, a completely uh, legalized underclass in Singapore. And I think we can say, we can look at what works in Singapore and absolutely cut out those ugly things. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I, I think, you know, people... Um, will seize upon those aspects of the Singaporean housing model and just sort of denounce it, you know, but they, I, I think they have a very limited understanding of Singaporean history. Singapore's, you know, the, you know, so the, after, de, you know, when decolonization was happening, the British empire had two separate colonies, the peninsula of Malaya and then the Strait settlements, which included Singapore. Okay. There were two separate colonies. So they received independence separately, just, you know, historically. In uh, 1961, they received independence. In 1963, they were merged. And Malaya added the letters SI, standing for Singapore, to become Malaysia. But you didn't mm. know that. And, I didn't know that. Yeah. And then, so Singapore became a part of Malaya, and they became Malaysia together. Because then, as now, Singapore doesn't have enough water to sustain its population. And it needs to get water from the peninsula, from the mainland. Um, but massive racial rioting broke out. Singapore and the other straight settlements were majority Chinese, and they had been for hundreds of years. Malaya was majority Malay, as it had been for thousands of years. And the slogan was Malaysia for the Malays, right? Mm. And the idea was the Chinese had access to all the good jobs, the good government jobs, the good slots in universities, they owned the businesses, the factories, and so on, and that the Malay majority needed to reclaim all these privileges from Singapore, from the Chinese. And, you know, um, they actually, so ra racial rioting breaks out and they kick out Singapore after only two years in 1965. And nobody thought in 1965, least of all Lee Kuan Yew, who went on TV and during an interview cried because his now his life ambition of becoming prime minister of Malaysia was shattered. Um, nobody expected that Singapore was a viable independent country. They just thought that Singapore would have to go back to Malaysia and ask for better terms, you know, crawling on their knees. Um, of course, that's that didn't happen after all, 
but this in, intense racial division in Malaysia, um, you know, has kind of carried over to the present day, right? Where the Malay and Indian minorities in Singapore, um, you know, are um, uh, are not treated the same way as this Chinese majority. And in fact, if you look at the Singaporean military to this day, there are no non-Chinese officers above a certain rank. Mm. Um, and there, there's this, there's certainly, you know, a very complex racial structure. Now, I, I was earlier talking about some of Hawaii's racial divisions and our racial problems are very real. But in terms of housing segregation, I do not believe that um, Hawaii has a has a tradition like the mainland does of white black segregation. I, I strongly believe that if we were to build, you know, um, non income restricted towers of Aloha homes in Hawaii, that people would move in and they would not be so concerned about um, wanting to live in a in an all white or an all blank community. Yeah. Um, and that's we see that in Hawaii. We just don't have the level of residential segregation that mainland communities do. And, uh, you know, even our people think that I represent a district that is mostly white or Howley. Um, the truth is the Caucasian percentage of my district is about the statewide average. And actually it's disproportionately twice as many Japanese and Chinese as a statewide average. So it's actually disproportionately Asian. Hmm. Um, but that being said, you know, Asians, white people, Hawaiians, Filipinos, et cetera, live, do live side by side in Hawaii, um, in a way that doesn't seem to happen as often on the mainland. Sure. And I, I think it's, it's also worth mentioning. There's a lot of, I think possibilities for positive integration when you have people rubbing shoulders in a public, you know, uh, in a public, you know, uh, infrastructure like this. Uh, I think you talk about, I think Singapore is trying to undo some of their wrongs by, you know, making sure there's quotas in resale within their HDB structures to make sure there isn't de facto uh, segregation between races and, and other things. And you talk about like our suburbs, you know, even when legally speaking, it's race blind. I think you, you, you obviously see throughout, you know, almost every city extremely, you know, uh, you know, you know, actual segregation happening. And this happens, I think, almost you, you need to work to prevent this from happening. And I, I think when you have the ability, you look at like, you know, college dorms, they have kind of an obligation to try to make sure there isn't segregation and they, you know, make it happen. I think it's I think it really in, you can make the arguments in public interest to make sure we don't have enclaves where people are kept apart, especially if this involves kind of the subjugation of an underclass in that sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I think that in Hawaii, we, you know, Hawaii, again, let me be clear, we have very deep and complex racial problems. But one difference between Hawaii that is tangible, that is quantifiable between us and probably any other place in the world is that we do have the highest level of interracial and interethnic marriage in probably the world. And um, for whatever reason in Hawaii, you know, um, you know, this is the land of Hapa people, of mixed people, right? And we have a higher percentage of mixed race people than any other place in the United States. It's over 40% by some uh, calculations, which means that, you know, when people live side by side, when they interact, they intermarry, and it's suddenly it becomes harder to stereotype or to fight against people that you're related to, right? And whose blood you carry in your own body. Sure. I and just... I'm not, 
I'm not saying that's the answer for everybody. I'm not saying that's the answer for the mainland. I'm not saying that's the answer for Singapore. Um, I think it would be offensive to suggest that, you know, white people and black people on the mainland should simply intermarry and then, you know, get rid of the problem. Um, but it's an old George Carlin bit. I, I think there's a lot of truth in it. Miscegenation, it, it works, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for it. But uh, I, yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's obviously there's different challenges, but I think there's certainly a lot of advantages in this kind of universal structure. And uh, I, I think, yeah, one thing to talk about, you know, I, I think is, are these kind of scales of public, you know, state capacity building stuff at cost possible? And you look at California and it feels like, oh, this, this is not done here. Some people point to University of California, the state uh, colleges, they are one of the major developers in California, and they will sell, as opposed to, like, I think uh, one, one stat looking at UCLA area, the Westwood area of Los Angeles, condos go for a million dollars, but a three-bed unit dorm, you know, it may not be as nice as, as a condo, but it's still housing people, 300000 is the construction cost. That's a massive savings, and that's already, they're showing their muscle. This is stuff that I think... Uh, even in a place that is relatively, you know, underdeveloped compared to HDB's capacity to, for development, we still can do it here, and we already are. You're right, and that's why you know I try to emphasize our obstacles are not technical, they're not engineering, they're not based on you know legalities or economics or anything. It's it's political. The obstacles are political, and so the only solution to a political problem is a political solution. And that's why Aloha Homes is, I've tried to craft a political solution. And I invite others, you know, I, I wish there would be other people who would come up with a plan and say, this is how we end a housing shortage. Because I'm, I'm also not interested in a halfway measure. You know, um, I'm not interested in measures that are just going to make the problem better or result in 200 units here, 500 units there. I, I the only way we can end it is to solve the problem, to end the shortage, to actually build enough housing to meet demand. And um, that's why, you know, Aloha Homes is, you know, premised on building 65,000 units, on quadrupling the amount of new housing construction. How do we actually get there? I don't think it's going to happen on its own organically. And that's why I think we need, you know, um, a massive state intervention into the housing sector. Um, but I think it, it is, you know, it is possible to do. And I, I would invite those of us, you know, who are serious about housing to think about, okay, if, if California really does need three and a half million new units, how would that actually happen? Like, you know, play the tape for me. Is it, is the three and a half million un new units going to come through demolishing single family homes and replacing them with fourplexes? Is it going to come from, is it going to come from redeveloping existing, you know, non-housing assets that are owned by the government, such as the Los Angeles Convention Center with high density housing? Um, I, I think that at the end of the day, if we're all starting out with a premise that we are going to try to find a political solution to end the housing shortage, I think we'll probably all end up in a pretty similar spot, which is high density housing available to all sold at cost without a taxpayer subsidy. And, um, you know, that's, um, that's, that's what Singapore, I mean, it's, it's not a coincidence, right? That's, it turns it's, out that's what Singapore does. I think um, if you want to, if you want to make a city work on constrained land and make it serve people in a sustainable and broad way, it kind of is the only game in town. You know, it's, it's, uh, for, uh, and I, I think, okay, so the, you know, Elaho Homes, it's a huge, I think, you know, going right for the jugular, you know, just really, you know, it is not taking a small 
step to make things slightly better. It is really trying to do something big. And I guess, you know, you're really being thoughtful as far as trying to create a lot of political coalitions to make this, you know, to support it. I guess the question is, uh, anything this big, I imagine it's still a, a big challenge to get through. You know, nothing nothing is easy. And I guess the question is, like, what what, do you, what does the path look like uh, politically in Hawaii? Yeah, so that's a, that's a fantastic question. So, And that's why I read the Francis Perkins book. That's why I've been studying Vienna and Singapore. So Vienna, in they launched their massive social housing program in 1920, right? The Austro-Hungarian Empire had collapsed. The city was in ruins due to the war. Um, it was housing shortage was so severe that they were renting out not rooms but beds in eight hour shifts. Nice. Okay? Um, and as a result, public health was awful. They called tuberculosis the Viennese disease. So there was the, a, an epidemic of tuberculosis back in those days, and that's when the newly elected socialist government came in and built massive amounts of public housing. Okay, in Singapore in nineteen in the early nineteen sixties, we just talked about the racial turmoil. We ter- we talked about Singapore getting kicked out of Malaysia. We talked about um, well, we didn't talk about, we, what we didn't talk about was there was a massive fire in the early nineteen sixties, the Bukit Ho Swi fire that resulted in sixteen thousand people left homeless. So there was an immediate impulse there. We need to build. We just we need to build housing as soon as possible for these people who are displaced. Right. In both cases, it was a, both cases it was a crisis. Frances Perkins in the 1930s. Um, you know what she accomplished, by the way. These were all her ideas, by the way. These were all her ideas: social security, the 40-hour work week, the minimum wage, unemployment insurance, anti-child labor laws. Okay, it's absolutely incredible what she accomplished. But how did she accomplish them? Because in 19 from 1929, when the stock market crashed, until 1932, when Roosevelt and she take power. There were four years of, of the most, you know, the most devastating economic chaos this country has ever seen. There was no CARES Act. There was no twelve hundred dollar stimulus check thing. There was a dust bowl that eviscerated the economies of the midwestern agricultural states. Okay, and that persisted for four years of twenty something percent unemployment. Only then was the situation so bad that the democratic majorities were able to pass these huge sweeping reforms. Okay. So the short answer to your question, Mark, is you need a crisis. Sure. And the good and bad news for us today is that we are in a crisis, right? We are in a pandemic. The economy of Hawaii is the worst of all 50 states. Okay. We have the highest unemployment rate that's recorded, but it's actually 14%. It's actually much higher than 14% because that does not include people who have been left, who have left their jobs, for instance, hotel workers, and who expect to return to their jobs. Okay. Mm. It is way higher than 14% in Hawaii. Um, the economic devastation in Hawaii is real. Okay. There are hours long lines for food banks and we have more than ever in my lifetime, in your lifetime, Mark, a crisis, okay? That yeah. we can kickstart something. Tourism is not going to bounce back overnight. It, it is not. It, is, it just won't. Sure. Right? And we talk about various ways to diversify the economy, whether it's agriculture. Even now during the pandemic, okay, with all the unemployment and the economic disaster that has ensued, Housing prices in Hawaii, like those in California, like those all over the country, are hitting record highs. $880,000 is the median home price on the island of Oahu. Yeah. A new record in September of this year. It's, it's, yeah. The demand is there for new housing. The demand is clearly there. 
Okay, we're not speculating about the demand. The demand is obviously there for more housing. And it is my hope and belief that this crisis will precipitate the opportunity to do something dramatic on housing. And yeah. um, that's the good and bad news that we have today. It's 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 something. I mean, it's it's a local issue. It's you know a regional issue. It's a, it's a national issue. But it's not the same everywhere across the, the nation. You know, obviously, um, you know, back in Ohio, you know, my sister could you know get a place not too hard on a you know with not too much money, but you know, in in Silicon Valley and then out in you know Honolulu, it is a very different system. And I think we need to look at ways that we can actually dig ourselves out of this hole. And I really. I really think it's an inspiring, inspiring th uh, way to deal with this crisis because it's not going away. You know, I think, uh, you know, young people, they, they are in a, a, a tight spot, you know, across the country. And I think especially in these these kind of unusually high cost of living places. So, yeah, as we wrap up here, I just want to point out, uh, you know, you, can, you, know, you have a f uh, series of videos you've been doing uh, our homes, talking to different people uh, in our neck of the woods. You're talking to, uh, I think, uh video with Scott Wiener, but then also have an interview with Susan Kirsch of, of uh, show favorite, Livable California. So, and, and, and on top of all the videos where you're talking, I think about more nuts and bolts about, you know, Singapore infrastructure, you know, and, you know, talking about Vienna, you know, authorities and so on. It's, it's you know, a ton of great content. I think more than that, just showing a ton of great energy, making sure we're trying to find the most educated and thoughtful ways to deal with this so uh you know well, worth checking out uh so and any final thoughts about kind of i guess what makes you uh in inspired that you know something good is going <laughs> to come from this and, uh, and better things are possible yeah well um you know just to I, I really appreciate the shout out um and i really appreciate having um me on this program mark i think um the fact that uh, all Democratic presidential candidates had a housing plan. It came up twice in the Democratic presidential debates. Um, I saw that, you know, former presidential candidate is, and now transportation secretary designee Peter Buttigieg. Uh, you know, obviously housing was one of the cornerstones of his um, presidential platform. And, you know, um, there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful for right now, including the pandemic. Um, and I'll just maybe summarize with one of my favorite Winston Churchill quotes, which is America can always be counted on to do the right thing after it has exhausted all other possibilities. And I think that whether it's Silicon Valley, whether it's Hawaii, we have exhausted all other possibilities when it comes to housing. And that's why we have the best opportunity in generations to make a big splash, to make a big change on housing today. And um, we, um, have that solution within our grasp oh, it's great. super exciting <laughs> fantastic so yeah thank you so much for making the time for this it's, it's it's been a pleasure so thank you for having me we have been talking to stanley Cheng, hawaiian state senator all about aloha homes and the many challenges and possibilities of public housing in the singapore model you can listen to this episode and all previous episodes of the henry george program at the website seethecat.org this is a presentation of KZSU, Stanford.